Welcome to the KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast Series, delivering fresh insights and perspectives around major accounting and financial reporting developments across a range of timely topics. We thank you for joining today. Welcome back, everybody, to the Pillar 2 pregame show, our five-part podcast series where we cover all things Pillar 2. I'm your host, Nick Tricarci, and thank you for joining us for Episode 4. We're going to switch gears a bit on today's episode. Instead of talking about how Pillar 2 works, we're going to talk about how to actually account for the top-up tax and where your auditor might be focused as it relates to the implementation of Pillar 2. But I definitely recommend you go back and listen to Episodes 1 through 3 so you're familiar with the concepts and terminology. It'll definitely make today's conversation more meaningful. And remember, we want to hear from you. If you have questions that you want us to answer, we are planning on hosting a mailbag episode at the end of this series to answer those questions on the air. And you can ask us anything, so don't be shy. It's super easy to submit a question to. Just go on the website where you found the podcast. We have a link to fill out a form. Whole process takes less than a minute. All right, so let me introduce our guests for today's episode. And today we have not just one, but two guests with us to help talk about the accounting and audit implications. On the accounting side, we have Matt Drucker with us. Matt is our topic team leader for income taxes for all of KPMG's national office. I like to call him the authority on 740. Matt, welcome to the podcast. How you doing, man? Good, Nick. Glad to be with you today. Awesome. All right. And then on the audit side, we have Danielle Matthews. She's the senior manager in our audit group of our national office and has been absolutely instrumental in terms of helping us develop our own Pillar 2 audit approach. So, Danielle, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Great to see you, too. All right. So guys, on episodes one and three, we've kind of alternated between easy and challenging. That's been one of the themes. On episode two, we talked about safe harbors as a great way to make Pillar 2 easier. And then last episode, we talked about the Globe ETR, which is incredibly challenging. So I think we're going to keep that theme going today. And Matt, I want to start with what I think is going to be the easy part of this conversation, and that's the accounting for Pillar 2. And so as I think about the accounting, the most basic question that I have is scope. Are these pillar two top-up taxes going to be income taxes within the scope of 740 and accounted for in the provision? Or is this some kind of other operating expense that companies are going to account for above the line, as we like to say? Well, Nick, I never heard anyone talk about accounting as being easy. But as we start to think about what the top-up tax is and what it's based on, if you take a look at it, it's really based on financial statement net income with certain adjustments and you pay a top-up tax based on that. And by definition, that is actually in the scope of ASC 740 and meets the definition of an income tax. So it will be an income tax and will be shown on the income tax line item. Okay, that makes sense. I was gonna be confused if you answered that the other way. So we're one for one on the easy accounting front. All right, so what does that mean? We're in the scope of 740, I understand that. What are the implications? You know, I'm thinking about current deferred taxes. How are those gonna be impacted by pillar two? Well, we got some good news earlier this year. In February, at a FASB board meeting, their staff concluded that the alternative minimum tax standard in ASC 740 is what applies to the top-up tax, and that includes QDMTT. And that's because it's a separate but parallel system where a company pays a minimum level of tax. And that is a company can never pay less than it would under the local regular regimes. And because it's an alternative minimum tax, the really good news here is we don't need to worry about deferred tax accounting. You only need to worry about 
income tax accounting when the top of tax would be due. So that really helps out. And then also, when you think about it is, you're not required to think about any impacts about valuation allowance on deferred taxes as well. So it's really a good answer in terms of how we think about the accounting for this is going to follow what we've done historically for other AMTs we've had under U.S. GAAP. All right. I think our listeners are going to like that answer as well. Let me follow up on something because we've talked a lot about Q1 on this podcast, right? The rules are going to affect in the first quarter. Companies are going to need to account for this in their interim provision, which, as we know, is different from the annual process. What do companies need to think about from an accounting perspective in Q1 for the top up tax? Yeah. And this is where it gets kind of a little bit more challenging, I would say, Nick. Companies are going to need to project what their top up tax is going to be for the full year. And then they're going to need to think about that, how they apply that to each quarter as they go through the year, consistent with their rest of their interim tax provisions. So they're really going to need to do the work up front to figure out what they expect the tax to be. And that's really going to be the fundamental key is getting ready, being prepared. And when it's time to file your first quarter 10Q, have a good, solid understanding of what you project that tax to be. All right. And anytime we talk about projections, I think there's going to be an audit impact on that. So I'm sure Danielle will have something to say once we bring her in in a few minutes. But last question for you, Matt, again, along the lines of projection, I guess, like if I think about when we implemented the new revenue standard or the new leasing standard years ago, companies were actually disclosing the estimated impact of that before the rules ever went into effect. So is there anything like that for Pillar 2, especially for a public company? Are there things that our listeners should be thinking about in 2023 that they should potentially disclose in their 10k this year before the rules go live well look i think items that are material and if the company expects it to be material the sec would encourage disclosure in the management discussion and analysis in their public company form 10ks i also think if there's a, a large impact many companies are considering disclosing what that will be in their income tax footnote although there's no specific requirement in U.S. GAAP in 740 that would require that to be included there. Many companies are thinking that additional disclosure is worthwhile. I mean, it makes sense. I think their investors are going to be asking about it regardless. And obviously, this is a big difference from IFRS, right, which is requiring companies to make this disclosure before the rules go live. We don't have that in U.S. GAAP, but like Matt said, a lot of companies are thinking through it. In addition to MB&A, I've seen some companies talk about it in risk factors. So, Make sure you're thinking through the SEC disclosure checklist for any area that might be impacted by material pillar two top-up tax exposure. All right, so let me bring Danielle into the conversation. So we gave Matt the easy stuff and not to stick you with the hard part of this conversation, but I think it's fair to say there's a lot when it comes to thinking about all the different audit considerations that are going to come with a company's pillar two implementation process. So I thought potentially a fun way to have this conversation was to play a little word association game. So over the course of the first three episodes, we've talked about a lot of Pillar 2 terminology. And I want to just throw a couple of those at you and have you give me the first thing that comes to your mind from an auditor's perspective. Are you cool with that? Yep, sounds good. All right, let's do it. So number one, monitoring the Pillar 2 implementation status around the world. Yeah, this is a great one to start with. So since this is an area that's evolving, it's going to be really important that the company has controls in place to identify any changes in a timely manner. You should think about the jurisdictions you operate in and monitor for any changes in those jurisdictions. 
And we've got a really great resource to actually help you with that. We call it our state of play document. We put it on our website. We update it periodically as things change. And it basically goes through every country around the world and lets you know what the current status is from a pillar two implementation and legislative impact. So make sure you check that out. All right, here's number two for you, Danielle, country by country reports. So while the country by country reports have always been prepared, they're gonna be under much more scrutiny now that the information within that could be the determining factor in whether the company qualifies for the safe harbor. Make sure you keep track of how the information in the country by country report reconciles to the financial reporting system and make sure there are controls in place over the completeness and accuracy of that information. Yeah, that's a great point. And we talked about this on episode two, where we got into the country by country report in more detail. And, you know, Marissa Renson was on and she observed some of the shortcuts that potentially companies have taken. So you're going to want to make sure if you've done any of those things, you uh, go the distance, so to speak, when it comes to the Pillar 2 safe harbor. All right. So Matt mentioned estimates for Q1, which are going to be relevant, not just for accounting for the top of tax, but also for whether you qualify for the safe harbor or not. So what comes to mind when I mention Q1 estimates of full year projections? Yeah, so this is going to be similar to any other estimate. It's going to be really important that you have controls in place to address the accuracy of that estimate. That should include controls over the data elements and the assumptions that are used in coming up with those estimates. And similar to other estimates, your auditor is going to want to understand how the control owner reviewed those assumptions and understand the precision of their review. So I'm sensing a theme here with your responses, which is controls and completeness and accuracy of information. And I think that's going to be the heart of the audit response for Pillar 2. All right, let me throw one more, which is kind of a loaded one, so you can take it wherever you want, but the GLOBE ETR. Yeah, so as you heard on the previous podcast, there are a number of adjustments that go into the calculation of GLOBE ETR. Again, completeness and accuracy is going to be really important. Your auditor will need to test controls over all those adjustments that present a risk of material misstatement to the financial statements. Your auditor will want to know where did the information come from? Is there already controls in place over that information? Alternatively, if new controls are being put in place, does the individual responsible for reviewing the adjustments have the right knowledge and expertise? As an example, corporate accounting might be best suited to review some of the topside adjustments whereas local jurisdiction personnel may be better suited to identify local accounting differences. So make sure you put some thought into that. Yeah, that's a great point. Another kind of key theme of this series is how coordinated tax and accounting needs to be when it comes to Pillar 2. And I think designing internal controls is no different from that perspective. So, all right, last one for you. When it comes to Globe ETR, all the data, we're seeing a lot of companies implement a third-party model to help them with collecting that information and then doing the calculation. So what comes to your mind from an audit perspective when a company is implementing a new model that's going to impact the financial statements? Yeah, the first thing that always comes to mind with using a new model, particularly a model from a third party, is to keep in mind that that doesn't relieve management of their internal control responsibilities. So you'll need to consider whether the combination of controls at the service org and at your company will address the risk of material misstatement. With respect to the calculation, in some cases, there might be enough information included in the SOC report to conclude that the SOC report addresses those risks related to the calculation, but this isn't always the case. So you may need to dive deeper and have additional conversations to understand what is and isn't covered by a SOC report. So again, yeah, I mentioned this earlier, but 
a few years ago, companies implemented the new lease standard, right? And we saw a lot of companies have to implement a new lease software tool to help them with the calculations under ASC 42. So maybe that's a good frame of reference. Companies can go back and see what they did around that new system and potentially, you know, import some of those controls now from a tax perspective. All right, guys. So my favorite part of the episodes that I've been doing is I always ask my guests to put on their coaching hat. I call it the coach's corner. And this is the section where we end the episode by giving our listeners some practical advice on ways they can actually implement some of the things we've talked about. So Matt, let me bring you back in. As somebody's thinking about their provision process for 2024 and now having to add on top of taxes, what advice would you give them in, in order to be successful in that regard? I go back to the premise that you can't do this alone with one person. The tax department's going to be working on this, but they need to make sure they're connecting with all of their counterparts within the accounting and finance org to get the necessary information quickly so they can do those projections, understand where things are going to come out, and that they'll have the necessary information to be able to properly prepare their first quarter income tax provision. I think that Trying to do this in a silo is always going to create issues, especially with something this vast where you're going to have a lot of touch points. That's a great point. And especially when you think about the tax provision, it's always something that's, you know, kind of the last thing to get done. It's, it's always on a tight timeline. And that's the regular tax. Now we're adding pillar two, which is going to come after all of that because it's going to be driven off the financial statements. So make sure everybody's on the same page early. So when it comes time to year end, you have enough time to get this done. All right, Danielle, how about you? What advice would you give our listeners to prepare and make sure they have a successful audit in 24? My advice has a very similar theme. Don't wait. Have a conversation with your auditor before the year's over. You'll want to have a sit-down planning session to walk through your implementation approach and timing and make sure you bring the right parties to participate in that meeting, probably corporate accounting, local accounting, tax, legal, internal audit. And then you'll want to ask your auditor what they'll be looking to see and what their plan timing is so that you can prepare. You know, there's really nothing worse than a last minute fire drill as you're trying to get your Q or K out the door. And Danielle, I think your advice on having those conversations with your auditor up front in 2023 is one of the best ways that you can avoid that fire drill. And really, it's a win-win. I mean, not only is this an opportunity to explain your approach to Pillar 2 to make sure your auditor is comfortable, but like Danielle said, it's a way to understand what the auditor is going to need and what their timing is so you can plan for that in advance in your financial reporting calendars. Plus, it's a great way to identify some of those fire drill type issues much earlier in the process so that everyone has plenty of time to work through them. So with that, we'll close things out. Matt, Danielle, thank you so much for being on. Really great to have you to share those valuable insights. Thank Thanks for you. And don't forget, we have one more episode in our podcast series. Episode five will drop on Thursday, and it's a conversation that you are not going to want to miss. We talk about the long-term implications of Pillar 2 with partners from both our accounting advisory group, as well as our tax implementation team, and what it's all going to mean to the accounting and finance organization, the IT environment, and organizational structure. We'll explain how you can take advantage of those things now by planning for them in advance. So please come back and join us for that conversation. Take care, everybody, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast. For more in-depth financial reporting developments, analysis, and podcast episodes, please visit frv.kpmg.us and be sure to subscribe today. Also, we're social. You can also follow us on LinkedIn at KPMG Financial Reporting View 
or with hashtag KPMGFRV. 